Blog Talk Radio. from idea to business model and emerging best practices. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer, co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio for our month-end pop health review are my colleagues, Fred Goldstein and Douglas Goldstein, no relation. Fred is a principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, Fred, uh, while Doug joins us for this month-end wrap-up. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. <laughs> well, let's see. Now, where might we find you two today as we do this broadcast? Fred, where are you? I'm a little close to you today, Greg. Phoenix, Arizona. And Doug? I'm right near Washington, D.C., where the government used to run. Awesome, and I'm broadcasting here from San Diego, California. So for those of you not familiar with Fred... Uh, Fred is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital, health plan, health, wellness, and prevention space from disease management to population health. He is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. Doug is a popular speaker, author, and consultant specializing in business development and strategic venture formation and currently serves as the national chair for the Health 2.0 Regional Innovate Smarter Roundtable Series. And I'm Greg Masters at 2HealthGuru on Twitter and the founder and CEO of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com. And to say that there's some hot news in the news today would be an understatement. And for those of you who have not uh, read uh, the blog post today, you can go to pophealthweek.com and check out the post, Pop Health Week Month and Wrap-Up Wednesday, June 24th, which identifies the stories we're going to cover today. So first up and out of the gate is Healthways. Fred, over to you. What's happening over at Healthways? Thanks a lot, Greg. Uh, good to get this show going this week, and as you said, we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today. We're going to start off with Healthways. Uh, Healthways is a company that's been involved in population health, disease management, wellness programs for a long, long time. But over the last couple of years, they've struggled. And uh, just this past Friday, they made an announcement and revised downward their guidance for this year's results, and uh, their stock took quite the hit, dropping about 20% or more, I believe, at this point. And it's interesting when you consider that, given that they've been around, obviously, for a while, have some international footprint, and have some unique programs like Silver Sneakers, Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index, and relationships with these uh, coming community initiatives like Blue Zones and Dean Ornish's program, which I believe is one of the few approved by CMS that's actually reimbursed for, uh, for its results. So I-, I looked at this and said to myself, why is it that Healthways, as 
in essence, the leader in this industry continues to struggle. Is it an operational issue? Is it their product? Is it the positioning they have in the market in terms of other areas that we'll get to later? They're a little hotter. Um, I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. What do you, how do you guys view HealthWays? I think their services are very valuable. They've been a leader for a long time. I, I think what they're dealing with is that they have to make consistent revenue to meet Wall Street uh, Wall Street expectations, and they're not doing that. So these companies who are flush with uh, a lot of external capital can undersell them, take market share. And so I think they're getting uh, blitzed by the uh, amount of money in digital health companies that uh, can subsidize their services for uh, this new plan of customers. Is that a call from Healthways IR trying to reach you, Doug? What's going on over there? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, So, okay, let me chime in. That was good. Um, So uh, nameplate property in the wellness space, uh, obviously tethered to some nameplates as well, Blue Zones, Dean Ornish, uh, uh, just two of them. Um, Is this, they seem to be, the right vision, the right time, the right market conditions? Is it a leadership issue? What what do you think? I think some of it's been uh, around their management. Ben Liedl, their CEO, was just released, and last year they had a pretty strong dissident group of shareholders try to come in and take over the board. Ultimately, the organization um, came to an agreement with that group and brought a few of them on. Um, but it still hasn't turned their operating results. I think Healthways also struggles some because there are so many of these other companies and industries in pop health that are kind of the cool companies with the new stuff, and Healthways just continues to provide you know good services. You think about Silver Sneakers, and really a Medicare Advantage program out there today without Silver Sneakers is kind of hanging out there bare. It's gotten so much traction and has so many people now enrolled in it and health plans offering it that it's almost like you have to have that. So I'm not sure at the end of the day if those programs like Silver Sneakers and the Blue Zones can ultimately move them to that next gen, but it's certainly possible. Um, And it's really, I guess, about execution to try and at least hit the numbers that they've said they're going to get to um, and begin to, in essence, maybe drop those back and overachieve a little bit to get back on track versus constantly missing those projections. So right company, right market, maybe leadership change here will make a difference. I, I think it might. I really do. And I think, it, you know, if we look at Healthways and say, here's one that's kind of flipping backwards a bit, a little bit of a company with a lot of history, been around, does good work in a lot of areas, you know, now we move maybe to this next topic of Fitbit, which is a darling in a sense. And go ahead, Doug, maybe introduce that topic to us and why, uh, how that might relate back to HealthWays. Well, I'm actually a typical Fitbit user. I uh, used it for about three months, lost it in a snowbank, and uh, now I'm uh, back in the quantified selfer world, and I've done 1,500 steps, 15,000 steps the last two days. So, and I actually like it. It's comfortable, nice form factor, but I'm just going to foreshadow some of it. Sort of not by it's not bi-directional, so it's my fitness data. And when we get into Oshner, we're going to talk about some really innovative work that Oshner is doing on bi-directional sharing for chronic disease management. But uh, I, I love Fitbit. I think they've been a leader for a long time, and their products are good. The question is, can they evolve their product to compete with Apple Watch going forward? So four days after the company's IPO, they they're valued at 4.1 billion. 
Uh, they opened 52% above its IPO price at $30.40. It was initially priced at 20 Is this warranted, or is this just digital health hype? I think it's a little bit of digital health hype. We've seen this quite a bit. Um, they've had a very strong market share in this area. I, too, have used the Fitbit, used the Garmin, used some of the others as well. It's a great, very easy-to-use device. My concern with this is the products, as Doug mentioned, that are, in, in essence, one-way type devices. And then the gym membership, where you get it in January, and by February, you're no longer using it. And I think we've seen some of that with some of these wearables, that either individuals who are good at it say, well, it gave me some information, and now I sort of know how to do it, or those that just say, ah, I stopped using it, uh, just got boring with me. So I think they're obviously uh, big, big launch. Interesting, I, I find that their two founding um, executives are now worth more than Healthways in total. Um, so you can see the big difference in how the market perceives value. Uh, but I wonder over the longer term whether they're going to uh, continue to be as successful. Yeah, and with that kind of a raise and that kind of enthusiasm in the space, uh, bubble potential notwithstanding, they certainly, if nothing else, might buy time to pivot from a one-horse type of show. Certainly you would think the funding allows them to do that. I think some of the question on that may tie into the other issue we raised with Fitbit, which is Garmin has uh, filed a lawsuit against them, uh, claiming that they have uh, or alleging that they've uh, taken some of their employees who may have taken some of their confidential information with them. Uh, so obviously that will have to play out. That could take years. So I think Fitbit, obviously, with all of the cash they brought in, is in a good position to begin to try to maybe better – develop their products to make them two-way, in a sense, as Doug talks about, and uh, and continue on. But I think at the end of the day, all of these products are critically based on what the brain is on the back end, and can that brain be used to then ping back to the individual to change their behavior at the appropriate place and time. So, Doug, what do you think? I mean, they're, um, they're a single product company right now. Apple's out there obviously redefining the space. Um, do you think they're going to have to broaden their offerings or do you think they can stay viable simply on the basis of uh, the tracker? Oh, no, I think you're seeing a move into Garment and they'll make some strategic acquisitions, uh, earlier stage companies with some good tech. So, I mean, that's what the IPO money is used for. So I think they'll be relevant for a long time. Well, according to CNBC, $200 billion market of consumer spending in health and fitness, so that's a chunk of change. I'm sure. I'm addicted. I'm addicted, and I think that uh, it's it's cross generational. So I think we're seeing devices tailored for older adults uh, and younger, and so I think it's going to be a very diverse market. And people love to interact with their own data, and it's uh, it's like interacting with a mobile phone. It's addictive. Well, I have to say, you know, at a couple of these health tech conferences there's usually been kind of a survey of by one of the speakers saying, how many of you have a Fitbit? And a couple of hands go up. And how many of you are still wearing it and using it? <laughs> and a lot fewer <laughs> hands go up, you know. So I, I, I'm thinking, well, yeah. The, the, the research I want to see is the people with chronic health conditions. Because I believe from what I'm seeing at Oshner with their early results, and I had a peak, of that last week interacting with uh, 
Richard Milani, Chief Transformation Officer down there, that if it's helping me manage my hypertension and I feel better, uh, I'm going to be a much longer user than six months. If it's if it's fitness data, then I may lose interest. But I, I think the bi-directional integration to with my care team is uh, very, very sticky. And we're going to see that with these studies that are going to start coming out, I believe. Okay, so bi-directional. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so with the Fitbit, HR, I'm tracking my own fitness data. I'm not sharing it with my care team. So I spent uh, part of uh, last Thursday with uh, Richard Milani at Oshner, and he leads their transformation and innovation efforts. And he's showing me data that patients are more likely to adhere to an app prescription than a medication prescription. And he's showing how diet, exercise, and uh, beats metformin, and other interventions for diabetics. So if we can help people communicate and surround them with social support from their doctors and their friends with these wearable devices and help them manage their conditions, they're going to release more endorphins. They're going to be happier. And I think that, and so bi-direction meaning I'm communicating my fitness or my vital sign information, activity data back to my care team the care team's new mission control is monitoring that and alerting them if I become sedentary or my blood blood levels go out of out of range. So that's what I mean by bi-directional. So I'm not sharing my Fitbit data with anybody. So it's really unidirectional to me. Yeah, I think that's an important point, and I agree with you completely on what Ashner has found so far, is that if we can make this information actionable for the individual, both through the personal connection to the care team or the providers or their physician, as well as through automated nudges and messaging based upon the data coming in, we can begin to see wholesale shifts in individuals' behavior change and improve the health of populations by doing that. And I think the the one piece that gets interesting also around this is the idea that not only do we need the clinical data from the end of, from the about the individual and from the individual, but we need to understand their persona, their behaviors, their networks, and leverage that to provide them with the right message at the right time to change their behavior, get them to do something to improve their health. And then that gets exciting when you start leveraging those big data sets as well behind the scenes on behalf of the individual using some sort of a device. Yeah, I've been talking for almost 10 years, the intersection of mobile, social media, gaming, gamification, behavioral economics, and really tailoring that to the individual based on my communication preferences. I may want an outbound call to remind me to walk or take my meds or a text message, and everybody's different. So Let me ask you this, uh, Doug. So it makes sense as this pivots from, you know, sort of general adoption and retention and use in the population at large, drilling into more chronic conditions where there might be a much more focused utility and persistent use of the device. Talk to us a little bit about how Oshner's vision is implementing that in terms of their EHR. Well, I'll be tweeting out uh, a picture of uh, Dr. Milani and uh, a patient who's been chronically hypertensive and, and the ability to manage his hypertension but the, they're getting a lot of press as being the first in the nation to manage 
their health uh, through the Apple iWatch. But really what what's going on, and, and they haven't released the press releases, so this is a little bit of news uh, before the release, is that um, Oshner, under Dr. Milani's leadership, is really re-engineering the entire primary care uh, cardiac care management of patients with a new mission control, a new infrastructure integrated to the health record, in this case it's EPIC, and that mission control is monitoring and pinging aspects of the care team to interact with their patients and to really support somebody in their health and reach out to them if they're missing their milestones and mutually agreed on objectives. So they prescribe an app prescription. They've got an Apple-like genius bar with wearables from multiple players, and patients walk down, they fill their wearable prescription, and then that device is connected, and they're sharing their data back into their health record and their care team, and the new mission control infrastructure that's being re-engineered is supporting those patients and keeping them out of the hospital and reducing readmissions. It's, it's really a very compelling um, and I think it's the right source of resource to be monitoring and supporting me in my fitness, health, and health care. So just uh, reading from their website, that uh, the title is Oshner Health System First in Nation to Manage Chronic Diseases with Apple Watch. Pilot program helps patients with high blood pressure. So those three names, hard to avoid that there's a there there, Oshner, Apple, and epic <laughs> seems like you know kind of important trilogy on the uh does this matter in my life question yeah i think we're finally starting to see some interconnectedness that's going to make a profound difference for individuals right and these wearables are not disconnected from my health my so if i don't have any chronic conditions it might be different but i, I think we have this whole a whole number of Americans, I mean, the healthcare cost problems being driven by diseases of choice, overconsumption, obesity, diabetes generated by those factors. And those are things that we really need this integrated multidisciplinary approach to because the answer doesn't sit in just another new pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think it's it's interesting that the early focus, which is great here, is on the chronics. Because if we can solve the chronics, we can then take this and begin to move it upstream and solve the pre-diabetic issues we face in this country and ultimately solve all of those lifestyle-based chronic diseases by getting out in front. And perhaps this technology is going to allow us to leverage the systems in a large-scale way to do that across millions and millions of lives. Yeah, and this really goes to the you know, innovate with a purpose idea. You know, there's been so much digital health innovation that's, you know, that hackathons create an app that gets uploaded to the iTunes store, downloaded, uh, downloaded one, or not iTunes, but, you know, the app store, downloaded once and never used again. But this really goes to core. I mean, through the Apple Watch, patients can now receive medication reminders, which include actual pictures of the pill, feedback from clinicians about potential side effects once a new medication is prescribed, and renewal information for prescription, including tack, tracking and exercise reminders. So they're bringing it, they're really bringing it home in a utility that means something in my life. Yeah, fantastic work. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's quite impressive, and it was great that uh, Pop Health Week got a, a pre-news release snapshot that uh, they were very comfortable with us sharing. So we're on the forefront of innovation in healthcare before it hits the uh, general news release press and our travels around the country. There you go. And here's Doug Goldstein's quote. It's not about the wearable. It's about the new mission control being built into the epic workflow that will change how doctors support patients in life, fitness, health, and healthcare. Douglas Goldstein, you futurist. Way to go, Doug. All right, next up. Alidade. All right, Alidade. We've had some interesting conversations about the, this company. Uh, the title on our blog is Alidade, the physician-led ACO management company, ACO Core Revisited. And let me just tell you that uh, I'm drawing here uh, against uh, the the uh, what I consider to be, in some cases, a similar situation, if not outright deja vu all over again with the birth of FICOR. FICOR was uh, birthed back in 1988 by four executives from the uh, Hospital Corporation of America, and they formulated a, a – they really launched the physician practice management industry, and they had about a 12-, 13-year run from 88 to 2002 – when they declared uh, bankruptcy, and prior to that had a series of leadership changes and attempts to divest certain unprofitable practices. But at the end of the day, they found out that their business model was just not sustainable. So here we go, different time period, different um, set of market conditions, but a very similar argument as to why you should retain this company, Alidade, much like the group practices, IPAs, PHOs, et cetera, that were uh, the target client for FICOR, Alidate is focusing on uh, individual physicians, primary care docs, onesies, twosies, and slightly more than that, to provide them with infrastructure so that they can form uh, an ACO, tone the water of risk, develop the processes, procedures, and, pers- and people to deliver on the goods of progressive risk assumption by the practices. And uh, I don't know. Do you think that uh, this is deja vu all over again, Fred, or is there something different today that gives them a shot, given the fact that they just received a Series B investment of $30 million from ARCH, from the ARCH Venture Fund? Well, first of all, congratulations to Alidade for that $30 million. Obviously, this can give them uh, the opportunity to continue to push out their uh, their solutions to providers. I think in many ways there are some similarities. It's how do we aggregate these positions up so that they can uh, be successful. Some of the differences, though, that I think are, are will make this a little more likely to succeed have to do with the fact that, number one, Alidade is not actually acquiring practices. Uh, number two, back then it was a fee-for-service reimbursement system, and the idea was we can save you on some operational efficiencies in your office, which probably proved to be not true, and we can better contract with managed care organizations for you to improve. Again, was another point. So what then happens is we're now looking at, obviously, the need for technology to begin to better understand your patients and the switch to value-based purchasing, which uh, requires additional expertises for the practice. So I think there are some differences there that obviously point to maybe a different result in the long run. How about you, Doug? I think that empowering doctors and not buying their practices and creating foot props is the way to go and and providing them the systems and the knowledge 
And it's essentially the new mission control is absolutely the right direction to go because people trust their doctors more than any other element of the care system. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did I hear that right? Did you say acquiring practices is the way to go? No, I said is not the way to go. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> providing the infrastructure and the support. Right, okay. Yeah. And, and interesting to note, uh, excellent points both Fred and Doug. Um, the business model at Allidade really is the right one. You know, uh, uh, maybe try and answer in part my own question, which is what's different today is the health IT infrastructure and framework that's available, more more ubiquitous, more reliable, better performance. I'll be there's different opinions about that. Uh, but they are on a business model that says, hey, you know, if we don't generate savings, we don't generate a fee. So lit- really they go at risk for the outcomes of the practice, and I think that's, that's a huge difference from uh, – from days gone by in the PPM industry. Absolutely a huge difference. And then the other question becomes, within the ACO models, is there enough revenue in shared savings to do anything? Is, is, and, and that's been the question I have. I don't think that as we move to these new value-based payments, there's a large enough upside to providers until they move to full risk. So it'll be interesting to watch over time. There are competitors. Obviously, Citra has a similar model of this out there where they've been offering their services to primary care practices and allowing them to aggregate themselves as well. I do think that primary care-based ACOs or physician-based ACOs will outperform those that are hospital-based ACOs, just given the fact that hospitals have to support that huge infrastructure cost they have and are much less likely to want to see a drop in bed days and accept it. Oh, yeah, that's huge. Um, actually, this whole idea of one foot in the production uh, canoe and the other in the risk-based queue <laughs> canoe is is kind of like, okay, how does one really manage under those conditions? And obviously, um, if you're just in on the shared savings side, that is uh, sort of risk-bearing 1.0, if you will, really upside only. And getting more aggressive about potential losses against target budgets is a whole a whole different story. So Aldenate also, as a physician-led ACO management company, does not have essentially the legacy interests of anything that might be institutionally or health system or hospital-sponsored ACO, where they're really about uh, heads in beds. Uh, ultimately, at least in the in the uh, maybe year one of a three-year contract but ultimately transitioning from beds and heads to population health metrics, you know, that's a relatively short time frame and thinking you can really change the culture, the incentives and, and workflows to survive in a progressively greater at-risk model is it, that, 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 that's the big question. But uh, physician-led ACOs, I think, will have a leg up against their institutionally-led counterparts. Agreed. Any thoughts, Doug, Mr. Medical Staff Guru? I think that we had a great interview with him at uh, Health Data Palooza. And is that up? Can people view that now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They certainly can. It's blog talk. It's blogtalkradio.com forward slash health tech media. And just look for Farzad Mostashari. 
And I think that uh, that that interview says it all. So our listeners ought to go view that and listen to that interview because we get some great brainstorming about making a difference there. All right. So I think there's I think there's some serious upside to this. You know, this type of a venture. It really is done right. I believe providers, given the opportunity to have the expertise and systems in place, will make the right decisions to be successful in the new healthcare market. Absolutely, and that maybe helps this transition and pivot to the next item on our plate today, and we're going to talk about this uh, rather aggressive chase by Anthem to acquire the assets and the operations of uh, Cigna. And, uh, you know, uh, we are, uh, and by the way, since that's gone public, we've also learned, and it has actually been predicted by some of the analysts following these companies, that uh, Aetna would be looking to acquire (laughs) Humana. So if you can think back to the days when we had the big six accounting firms and then big four and then ultimately fill in the blank, however many, um, think about it from the point of view of the too-big-to-fail idea that, you know, how can these institutions get so large that they, they, they pose systemic risks, if you will, to the ecosystem? And we're certainly going to be faced with that question if, in fact, Anthem acquires Sigma, Cigna and, and Humana gets gobbled up by Aetna. So, Fred, any thoughts? Uh, I think the health plans right now are kind of wondering wh- what's their role. This whole system is changing radically, and uh, as risk moves to providers, as uh, providers get a stronger say in the situation, they're kind of wondering, do I partner with providers, which they're all trying to do? Do I gobble up health plans just to control more lives so I ultimately can set and, and try to further control my destiny? I do think there are issues that they're, they're, that ultimately get raised around uh, a declining number of hyper-insurers, in a sense, or these huge companies are already big to begin with. So um, as Anthem obviously has been pretty aggressive about going after Cigna, there there are issues with risk. I know some of those risk issues were dealt with in the ACA where they told providers, hey, look, you please come in and we're going to protect you. Um, so does that is that sort of a first step towards too big to fail? You know, when they step into the ACA, make sure that the that the the um, health insurers don't get hurt, so they don't leave. Um, if they're really big, do we have to say we protect them all the way out like we did these banks? That's certainly a possibility. How about you, Doug? Bigger is always better. <laughs> I think that it's uh, I think it's going to be a huge challenge. That I think a lot of this is financial engineering, and that maintaining the level of customer service. Um, that they had individually is going to be real challenging as they seek to, uh, you know, rationalize programs and services. And it's the same experience I'm having with the big integration between United uh, American and U.S. Airways. So I think it's going to be a bumpy road in uh, meeting and achieving objectives because there's a lot of financial engineering driving the merger. Yeah, of course, you say bigger is better always in jest. Uh, clearly, lots of issues. Hey, Doug, you got to stop typing, bro. <laughs> so um, we, we we have to look. I mean, I look at it this way. Uh, in, in one respect, this is always a balancing question, you know, and with uh, 
clearly lots of conversation pre-ACA about how this is going to force consolidation of, on the provider side and ultimately clinical and integration and so forth, the health plans are saying, hey, what about us? I mean, if these guys organize, be rest assured, even though it's wrapped in community benefit and operating efficiencies and better service for our constituents, it's really about price. <laughs> you know, you know, you consolidate, you create pricing leverage. So the health plans are saying, hey, well, what about us? <laughs> you know, saying, okay, go ahead. You guys form these massive nonprofit 501c3 health systems, and you got the Federation of American Hospitals out there trying to leverage up their networks as well. So the health plans are saying, hey, we got to do the same because the reason health care costs are rising is because hospitals are so expensive and doctors are so greedy. So, you know, I think that's the primary argument. Any thoughts? I I, I find this bigger is better, obviously. Uh, just like Doug, is, uh, um, there's, there's, uh, there's a limit we're going to reach here you know, if we get down to a few big insurers, we're going to see the same issues we saw before in the other industries. I do believe there's expertise within many of these health plans that can be leveraged to, to create more successful models in the current and future environment that providers in particular can use. So I think the ideas of partnering that we've seen with some of these joint ventures around uh, uh, provider-based and health plan-based ACOs, et cetera, have some potential of sharing expertise and creating better outcomes. But um, just just adding to and making larger and larger insurers, I don't know, is necessarily the right answer. So, And one last question, really, Fred. Uh, what do you think of this allegation, or at least uh, Anthem saying that, uh, gee, if David Cordoni, the CEO of Cigna, would only you know, kind of submit to our succession plan, which does not guarantee his future. <laughs> they could actually return the premium of the existing stock price to Cigna as shareholders. What do you think about that in terms of resistance? Oh, I mean, it's it's amazing what these guys are doing out there. I, You know, at the end of the day, all of the executives are going to do fine regardless. So, I, you know, um, and that's sort of the interesting thing. You know, everyone always projects these huge savings from these mergers. Rarely do they occur. And the integrations are difficult. So, uh, I don't know. I try to stay out of some of that other stuff but I, and look at it from just how they're, they're operating their, their companies. But I think there's there, there may be better ways to do things in the future than just looking at merging HMOs together or health plans. Okay, well said. So, of course... As we progress out here now, the final topic is this uh, personalized medicine, which has gotten a big um, injection from the Precision in Med Medicine Initiative that the president announced earlier this year. And um, I think uh, there's been a report that they put out, uh, the Personalized Medicine Coalition, paying for personalized medicine, how alternative payment models could help or hinder the field. And it's given rise to this new acronym, APMs alternative payment models and so this is interesting i found this interesting because we all or most of us are familiar with this 17 year uh, on ramp between bench to bedside innovation and clinical medicine and the slow relative uptake of innovation by mainstream medicine so uh if that's the de facto standards that we're facing layer on top of that some of these concerns that they've identified in terms of uptake, whether it's, uh, you know, outcomes-based, evidence-based, the regulatory uh, hurdles, and so on and so forth. So 
for for me, the, my, when I first read this, I got, oh, my God, you know, not only is there this dubious, these legitimate questions around validation of digital health uptake, but now all this promise of, pers- you know, precision medicine, genomics-guided uh, medicine intervention and targeted therapeutics and all that, there's they just seems to have more hurdles before the value benefit can be realized. Any thoughts? Well, we have the same two hurdles in the translation from research. It's called reimbursement. We didn't pay for the translation of it, and we have regulatory barriers. The consumer adoption of technologies for fitness and health are much faster than the application of those technologies for medical care and health care because of regulatory and reimbursement lags, barriers, and challenges. Yeah, I think here's here's an interesting way to look at some of these alternative payment models and how they ultimately impact some of these new technologies coming in. So if you think about it, you're building a model off of a historically-based fee-for-service system. If you introduce a new technology and it hasn't been within the fee-for-service system, so there's no CPT code for it, when your actuaries, et cetera, start to try to figure out impacts, it's not built into the revenue or pricing. And so it it tends to get left out, and that's one of the reasons why you've seen some push over the last couple of years to drop some of these newer ideas into the CPT code tables, et cetera, so that they can begin to get integrated into the revenue stream. So when someone there goes to build a model on, say, full risk or partial risk, there's some utilization of those services in there. And it's going to be more difficult to for health plans who have done that for years or other payers to say, wow, this new technology's come along. I have no historical basis for how that might work, and I'm going to put it into a full-risk contract with a group of providers, and they have no idea what its impact might be up or down. It gets very difficult, and that that's where a fee-for-service system makes it a little easier. You drop in a CPT code for, uh, oh, this genomic testing, and then it gets paid for. But if you put it into a risk-based contract where you have no historical basis, it's, it's tougher to figure out. Well, well and then... And then you have things like the Hep C uh, drugs that are blowing the medication budgets of health plans and at-risk groups. So there's huge challenges with uh, logical innovation because some of these innovations are costly to deploy and expand the use to all those who need it. Yes, theoretically, in the long term, less costly because they're curative, but uh, in the year in which the claims were filed... <laughs> And that perhaps they're a pop to the uh, to the plan. So uh, let me just mention one last thing. I uh, didn't get it on the agenda, but it's well worth uh, reading. Uh, the blog post on ACOWatch.com, the ACA, ACOs and Health System Reform Five Years Out. This is a, a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine published by David Blumenthal in the Commonwealth Fund. It's a real sober reflection on the status of the health of the various provisions of the Affordable Care Act some 5 years later it's re, it's 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 excellent reading so let me conclude here by saying first uh, Fred then Doug good week for pop health in terms of some of these innovations or not what's is it net net positive or neutral or net negative I think it's a net positive. There's some good stuff going on. A lot of people are innovating. I mean, the stuff that Doug talked about from Oshner is just fascinating to hear about and uh, looking forward to see what happens with that over the years. Doug? It's hot because we have leaders like Dr. Hockman at Providence and Dr. Clasco at Jefferson who are really 
transforming their culture through their leadership and their values. So I think that that's being translated across organizations like Ashner and many others who have you know, inspirational leadership who can not only just lead, but they can get things done and they're getting their hands dirty. Well, I would say I agree. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. On our second month-end wrap-up here on Pop Health Week, uh, we do this weekly at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week, and our special guest is Roy Hinman, M.D., with Island Doctors an innovative primary care practice running risk-based contracts in North Florida. Till then, for Fred Goldstein, Doug Goldstein, this is Greg Master saying, bye now. <laughs>